Welcome to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. In this ever-changing world, it's essential to prioritize our children's emotional well-being. Lynn can show you how to learn and model healthy emotional habits for your loved ones and become a rock-solid support system for your family. Now, here's your host. And we are back. And I want to start today by extending my appreciation to those of you who've reached out over the last few weeks wondering what's happening because I haven't launched a new episode or shared another guest with you. Life happens sometimes, but we're back at it, doing things in a different way, not every single week, but I'm still thrilled to bring you guests like our last one, Ginny Luther. She really caught me off guard in a few places. I learned a lot. I got put on the hot spot and she helped us see that our responses in any given moment can impact our child because they actually mirror our own inner thoughts. And are we shooting our children? I've never heard that expression before last week either. But Jenny shared with us the repercussions of that, which includes shame and guilt. Peaceful or conscious parenting does not mean that we have to give up our boundaries. We can be kind and firm at the same time. And if you missed Jenny, please go back and listen. I'm about to welcome Wisteria Edwards as our guest today. She's a respected kindergarten teacher, and she has perfected the art of creating a classroom of care, hope, and healing. Her passion for teaching led her to gain access to Mr. Rogers' personal papers. And her groundbreaking book is about to be released called Waiting for Mr. Rogers, Teaching with Attachment, Attunement, and Intention. And anyone who works in a school knows that there are times when we feel triggered by individual people, whether or not they're students or colleagues or parents. But if we stop to ask ourselves the reason why we feel triggered and ask a larger question that we're going to talk about in the second half of the show, what do I have to learn from this situation or from this individual? When we put well-being at the forefront, even as early as kindergarten, we can transform educational practices. Hello, Wisteria, and thanks for joining us. I think what we're going to be speaking about today applies to any time, any place. School systems around the world are starting at different times of the year. In North America, we've just begun. It really is a matter of reflection and how we think about things so we can start to make change. Absolutely. So being proactive, being intentional, yes. very important. You got it. And it can start any, at any time. You know, I, I started my work with attachment with children. We didn't start this process until October and it still worked. So I think that anybody that wanted to start it right out of the gate would be, it would be very beneficial for both of them or all of them actually. So Mm -hmm. let's go back to where this all started for you. Right. I mean, I, I'm, gosh, I want to say how many years I've been in education right now. And every day there's something new every day. There's something unpredictable. And every year we've got one or two students that we say, "Mm, Hmm, gotta figure this, gotta figure this little person out, this big person, whatever your secondary, post-secondary, whatever it is, but figure this one out. So Mm -hmm. what, what happened with you? Um, well, I would say back about five five years ago, a little boy who I uh, write about in a book that I'm releasing, waiting for Mr. Rogers, um, to keep his anonymity, I called him Blue Eyes because he does have these big, huge crystal blue eyes. He's now entering fifth grade. But when he entered my classroom as a five-year-old, he was an absolute beautiful disaster in every way. He was violent. He was verbally abusive. He would scream, I don't care at me whenever I try to correct him. His mother uh, was about to have a child with another man, not his father. Um, And then his dad had just been recently released from prison. So it was just kind of indicative of what it was going to be like. Um, And 
my first encounter with him, he was chest bumping other kids, running through the room. She was screaming profanity at him. And I just knew that it was not going to be the same kind of kid that I had. And I'd actually just come from extreme poverty. So I was expecting kind of less of that chaotic behavior. And this was just so extreme. Like he was just- And from his perspective, the life that little guy was living. Correct. Turmoil. Turmoil. (laughs) Yeah. He had a maternal grandmother who was in his life who was wonderful. And so she was kind of a go-to person for me, but she didn't pick him up all the time. So he had just started to learn- well, to know his father. So there'd be days where his dad would try to pick him up and he would go through this extreme anxiety because he really didn't know his dad. And so it was just so much for his little brain to take in that I was looking for a solution. And, you know, you being in education know that, you know, we often at the beginning of a school year will be reminded of adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. Mm -hmm. And so they'll give a presentation and be like, and this is why it sucks. Have a great year. Like they never gave us any ideas of what to do with it. We knew from data that you needed at least one caring adult to come into a life of a child who's who's experienced extreme uh, adversity to create resilience, which would be what would help them survive it. Right. But Children like him are so hard to love and children that need love, the most love, ask for it in the most unattractive ways. Yes, very true. And I was in my own healing journey of an insecure attachment that had brought me into counseling and um, had kind of shattered me from tethering to um, to abusive people and abusive uh, relationships and behaviors. And so... I was in that process of kind of unearthing my own childhood developmental trauma of why that was the case. And so he was kind of re-triggering me to be anxious again, where I was gaining that secure attachment. So it was kind of like the perfect storm. So there's different perspectives coming in here, because I think it all comes down to how we look at this, right? So we could look at this, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Or with empathy and with open eyes and say, this is the world this little person is living in. And what am I going to do to help them through it? And you become maybe that one safe person that makes that difference in that child's life. Not maybe, hopefully that's our goal as teachers, right? right? It is our goal. But what was interesting about him and this time was that I saw it completely different than I ever had before. It wasn't just he was a problem I needed to fix or how am I going to be that one person for him? It became how am I contributing to his chaos emotionally? And so that is the flip. It was a way that I looked and listened differently because what I tried with him was really a last resort or like, I have no idea what to do, which was really hard for me as a teacher who had been very successful up to that point relationally with children. 15 years I'd been in education before I met him. And so I really felt like I had it figured out, to be honest, Lynn. And so I didn't understand why I was having such difficulty with him. And um, I started explaining that to my therapist and she was like, well, you, what we really need to do, what we know from what you're learning is that if we were to actually go back and heal his attachment, his insecure attachment, that is the beginning of all adversity because it's our first heartbreak as a child. We are either secure or insecure. And so I started to look at it and see it differently just because that's what I was healing myself already, 
right? So by engaging my own story at the same time as I was trying to help another child, it literally put the pieces into perspective versus just having it be classroom management or strategies I would use or whatever. It was like a holistic way of looking at it. So it was completely different in that regard. And so I, as a last resort, went on to YouTube and searched out Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, comma, crayon episode, because I thought to myself, uh, well, at least when I was growing up, we watched Mr. Rogers. And so I thought, I know I can trust Mr. Rogers, but because there's so many complex, uh, shallow kind of programs out there that are very uh well-received, they, you know, districts will spend thousands of dollars on them, right? But they give them to teachers and then they sit in our classrooms because it's one more thing, which you know from your own work with social and emotional learning that teachers will be like, I don't have time for that. But this is my absolute non-negotiable now that we don't get to anything else. It's fine. But we always get to Mr. Rogers now because it has to matter more than anything else, the social and emotional wellness of children. And tell me if my interpretation is wrong with what you were sharing. So by identifying attachment disorder or whatever that trauma was as a child, if, if we're just aware that a student in our class could be triggering us just being aware that's it's huge difference. It's huge. Okay. So it's that's so huge. Self-awareness. Yeah. Right. And then we can start to say, okay, what worked for me? What didn't work for me? What's new? What's available now? And then dig mm-hmm. into now, how can I help him, but also keep myself well? Yes. And that's the problem is that we want first and foremost, because of COVID and everything, we talked about self-awareness or self-care a lot, and we've really mislabeled it. We've talked about self-care being like bubble baths and drinking wine, and that's not it. It's more about being absolutely present with the feelings that we feel in our body and asking ourselves questions about them and being curious where we say, God, you know, I am so angry right now when this child is doing this and I don't know why my my emotions are so extreme, right? So I noticed things that he would do would trigger like huge feelings in me. And I recognized through my work that that was actually childhood wounds that were coming to the surface. When we have these, these reactions and feelings that are just so magnified or under magnified, like they're so... They're so little when they should be bigger, when we know that like that should probably be a bigger reaction for me, but I just don't feel anything. It's just started to be really curious about those things. Like, for instance, one of them had nothing to do with blue eyes, but I used to get so frustrated when like mad when children would be crying for their mom. And I teach kindergarten, of course, they're crying for their mom, but they'd be like, I want my mommy. I want my mommy. And I would be like super annoyed with it totally dismissing it. So instead, one day when we started to watch Mr. Rogers, his face would come to my mind, Uh just his face. And then also my third grade teacher who was so extremely abusive to me would come. It would either be Fred or this abusive teacher. And it was like, almost like a a, a paddle, like a a ping pong paddle, right? (laughs) Whatever face I saw was going to stop me because the third grade teacher reminded me how I never wanted children to feel because of how she made me feel. And then Fred was a reminder, I need to, which he says in a song, look and listen carefully. So children 
there's always a psychological component behind everything they do and say. So yes, they're crying for mom, but what is that really telling me? Right. right. Yeah. But it also, there's a psychological component behind everything I feel. So why am I so annoyed when they are crying for mommy? And then I realized as I unpacked my own story of insecure attachment, I'm mad because I cried for my mom and she didn't always come and get me. And so why should their mommy come and get them when they just need to learn how to deal with it? Whoa, huge, huge. Same thing with Band-Aids. That was a total Band-Aid scrooge. Like wouldn't would give them out, spit on (laughs) it. And I realized that that ambivalence and that anger that I felt, because we have a lot of rage if we have things that have not been unpacked as children, or we have been abandoned in story or moments. And so that anger that I felt, I don't have the time to keep caring for that, which is what I got from my mother, right? So recognizing that there are always two children in a story or a moment with a child we are interacting with, our own child inside us and them. So it's crazy. But the more that I acknowledged the little girl in me and said, man, that was not okay that you were left alone wondering if someone was going to come care for a Band-Aid or someone was going to come when you cried over and over again because they were going to just help you and love you, which is attachment. I have a need. You come and help me with my need, right? And then once my need is cared for, I can go off and explore my world with that feeling of safety because you're always going to be there. But a a child that has insecure attachment, just like Blue Eyes or any other children that are struggling, they don't have that safety and security. And that's why they're either in our grill or trying to avoid all attachment. Like how many kids did you ever walk through a, a, a hallway with because they were dysregulated? Did you have a few of those kids that you walked around with? Everyone does. Everyone exactly. does. And you were the coolest because you went and, and you you got them some juice and you told them that they were loved. And and the thing is, is that they will keep going to the nurse's office if they feel safe there. Mm-hmm. Right. The thing is, is that, but we don't even create that emotional safety for ourselves. We don't ask ourselves those questions. So you get triggered, which is like what I was feeling in my body over stupid band-aids. And then I'm a complete, heinous, horrible person to the children I'm teaching where I'm snapping at them, we're totally intolerant. And now I'm passing that generational trauma on to them. I'm passing that, that anxiety. My nervous system is communicating to those children and now your needs annoy me. And so that is what I was starting to see in my own life, but also seeing in my colleagues. And that's why I felt very compelled to go deeper into the work of of Fred Rogers and to see how I could mirror what I was learning in attachment theory and, and attachment repair is what we called it by basically going back to those moments as a child that pinged for me. So in my own therapy, we created um, a narrative of a timeline of your life, right? So taking like one year of your life, like three and putting some bullet points on there of things you remember, just a cue. And then she would read it. And it was like giving my brain that neural pathway because neural pathways are created by going through experiences over and And over and over again, right? So Mm -hmm. what we're doing is when she would get to a cue, like a word like, 
you know, let's say I I fell into a fountain as a child when I was three and it was terrifying, right? I'm like a big water fountain. If I just put the word fountain on there as she's reading it, if I just couldn't kind of get past that in my brain, she would know to go back through that story and ask me like, what did it feel like? And, and really, because all of our senses are locked into our traumas. So what did we feel in that moment? And how did our body feel? How did our, um, what beliefs did we create? Like I fell in that fountain because no one was watching me. So I'm not very important. We create narratives where there is ambiguity or blanks. How many of us have like, you know, been at the same Christmas event and when we retell it with our siblings or our family, mm-hmm. people are like, no, grandma wasn't even alive then. Why? Well, she's not in that story. But like, yeah. we put people in or we create things to make sense of them, especially if the people in our lives that are supposed to protect us are harming us. They're being terrorized, um, all of those things. And so what's beautiful about what I learned through the work of Mr. Rogers was that he really believes in or, and, and fiercely believed in telling children the truth about everything and not telling them so much that it abused them or scared them. But also, like, for instance, when we went through COVID, I would say, you know, COVID is an adult problem. And it's okay that you're nervous about it, but you have people who love you who will keep you safe. So always emphasizing that there is someone in your life that will take care of you and keep you safe. Who is that person? And it might be me if I'm the teacher, right? And then that also opens up a conversation for them to tell me about domestic violence, to tell me about that they're hungry or like they see your face and you can testify to this too, right? That, or to testify to it, that, Basically, they see our face and they instantly will start just spilling out what they need to tell us because we are a safe place and every child needs that one person. So that's kind of how it just started to, and it was so humbling for me, like ways that I'd filled my own children um, as I disassociated and not dealt with pain. And then to be able to reparent myself, but also then to mother children who were not receiving what they needed. And so creating that secure attachment in my classroom. So I'm not kidding. It's crazy. Like we had less behavior issues. Um, and then through, I write about it in the book with him, but we had moments where he would test it, right? Like he was had reactive attachment disorder. I'd like, I'm not a, a therapist or whatever, but it was very clear with the signs that he had massive attachment issues. But So he would jump between both of the different styles of avoidant and anxious because he didn't know how he needed to survive in a moment. So there would be one day where I'd be like, I am the best teacher ever. He is so awesome. He's responding to me. And the next day he's telling me, you know, to F off. Like he's, I mean, it was like so extreme that if I were getting my self-worth from him, or if I were coming from an insecure place myself, it's instantly going to make me feel like a failure. I'm going to resent him. It's, there's, it's going to create contempt, right? So it's interesting, but fast forward now, he's actually come down into my classroom once a day for an emotional check-in, which I think is so important that we do in schools where we have key adults, and they do this a lot in the UK, key adults that that child checks, checks in with, and it doesn't need to be the classic, my counselor checks in every day, the school counselor. If a child... And I, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how much I believe in this. If a child is deeply attached to their first grade teacher and they are a fourth grader, allow them to check in with their first grade teacher. Mm. The person they trust. 
like stop pretending that you have all the answers for every child because it's just not appropriate. I do not connect on a deep, deep level with every child I teach. Now they will never know that, but there are children who really write on us and change us. And I asked for him for two straight years and they said, no, he's fine. He's fine. And he was tanking. And for two years, I kept asking, please, can I have him back? And everybody's like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. So when a child has a relationship, allow them to return, allow them to have that other person because it takes that whole village. But the village isn't just the teacher they have right now. And then that insecurity in us bubbles to the surface when we feel like we're not meeting the needs of all children. So I'm I'm putting the administrator hat on, right? And I think I'm interpreting, I I just want to make sure I'm interpreting, uh, checking in is one thing, but to have the same teacher repeatedly over time, over time, over time is not what you're saying. Okay. Because that's not healthy either. I'm talking about looping. What I'm saying is, you know, like for instance, you know, I kept saying, like in first grade we had COVID and I was like, please let him at least check in with me uh, because I think that that would really help him. You know, so like when we know what works for a child, I, I also feel like we throw it, the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, every year. Well, we might say like some comments like this really worked for Lynn. And like, this is the best way to Lynn's heart. This is the best way to help her feel loved, right? We write that on a, a fly up card or whatever it might be. And then it just kind of falls away. And then it feels like that the next teacher might be struggling with, with you. Let's say you're, you're the child at that point. Or I might overhear like someone talking about you. Like I'm really struggling with Lynn. And I'm like, hey, have you tried this? And they look at you like, well, this Lynn's mine now. Like, so we have to stop like acting like we know everything about all children. Because I think the more that we understand that all children are unique and there are things that work for them and there's things that don't work for them and that is okay and it's okay for one person to find that out about that child before I got them and then how can you know and so what was beautiful about this last year with blue eyes is that his fourth grade teacher he would be able to say to her I need to go see Mrs. Edwards and she'd be like do you have your work done yes okay go like, so he had that in with his teacher where she, he'd be like, I need a break. And she knew that she could trust that he would come to me. And there were times where he would literally walk in and I'd be at my computer and he would just stand next to me and he would just like take over doing the brain breaks on YouTube for my kids or whatever. And, or what's hilarious is he would key in on the kids that were like him when he was little. And he'd be like, man, he's really bad. I'm like, you know what Aww. you used to do? And he was like, no, I did not. And I go, actually you did. And he goes, wow. And you still loved me. So it was really cool for him. And then it was funny. Cause he'd be like, oh, I never want to be a teacher. That's really hard stuff. Like, so he recognized later that, but then I was able to say to him, do you know why it's hard for you to read? Cause he's still struggling with reading. And he was like, no. And I was like, because when you were in here, all I needed to do was teach your brain that you were safe. Do you remember when it was hard? And he was like, Yeah. Like, so telling him the truth, like, this is why it makes sense that you're still struggling with what you're struggling with, because this is what we were doing for your brain. So he can come down and and have a big reaction and tell me how he's feeling. And he knows that I will always love him no matter what. So how are we going to, that's why I'm saying it's, we can't be that person for, let's say I'm in a building with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of children or as an administrator. You can't be that one key adult for every single child in your building. It's just not practical. So if it's a cook that they connect with, what if they connect with the custodian? What if they connect, like allow and ask children, who do you feel loves you? Who do you feel loves you into being in this building? Right? Because 
we might be surprised what they say. Like our paraeducators, we have to empower them to have great relationships with children, or I don't know what you guys call them where you're at, but the same idea, teacher's aides, whatever it might be. Like, um, I just feel as though we are not islands and we need to expand our reach. Please, like, and that's the big thing for the beginning of the year. One, emotional, like how are we taking care of kids emotionally? Are they safe to tell us exactly what they feel, even if it's ugly and yucky? Like, it's okay to be mad. It's really okay. You know, and I would be mad about that too, affirming it, right? Validating, having, oh my goodness, having an empathetic witness, we have to stop making emotions good or bad. They right are what they are. <laughs> They're just there. They're part right? of who we like, are. Yeah. And we can have a million of them in one minute. Like it's okay. And so I know, for instance, on my roster, I have a little boy that's coming in. His mom has already reached out and said he has had XYZ of traumatic incidences and he has witnessed a lot of violence. A part of me pinged and got a little bit excited, as weird as that is, because one, I am okay with trauma. Not that it happened but that I know what to do with it now. The first thing I have to do is validate that it ever showed up at all. Stop pretending it didn't happen. And it's okay to talk about it and ask kids how they are with it. Second, recognizing that she said he's got anger issues. So I'm like, okay, so what am I going to put in place for that? And I'm going to start with those lessons versus talking about you know, other types of things. We're going to focus a little bit more on angers to start the year off. Like sometimes when we're confused, we're angry. Sometimes we're sad, we're angry. Sometimes when we feel like someone's not being fair, we get angry. Like, yes. Yeah. So all of those kind of things, um, that helps me prepare for him. I, I just have so much I want to jump in with, but yeah. heading, off, heading off to break, let me just you know, as we're heading off, whatever class we have, how many kids, let's just say average of 30 kids. I know it's different yeah. around the world. That's 1,000 children, 1,000 young people that we're impacting in our career. That's a lot of responsibility. Yes. And, and and yeah, and, and a lot a lot of stress and a lot of coping skills go with that, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. When we come back, I want to talk about your book, Mr. Rogers, and some specific lessons to to, to create an environment where kids do feel safe, where they can talk about their feelings, where it's accepted, and where it just Mm -hmm. becomes a natural part of the day. We'll be right back, everyone. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Our children are growing up in a world that is more complex than ever. It's time to start thinking proactively. Meet Zerko and the children who glow in the color they are feeling because they haven't learned to control their emotions yet. In the Power of Thought Children's series, we're not only teaching children about emotional vocabulary, but how to recognize how they are feeling and what they can do about it. We live on an imaginary planet called Tezra, where every character is named after a crystal. Each of the five books in the series takes children into a situation they can relate to, but teaches problem-solving skills and evidence-based strategies they can use for life. This series was developed in collaboration with clinicians, educators, parents, and guardians, and it's the winner of the Mom's Choice Award. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the Books tab.
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. Have a question for Lynn or her guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now, back to the show. And we're back from a break with Wisteria Edwards, and we've been talking about that aha moment when we realized, you know, we're being triggered because of something that's happened to us in our past. And that's very often how we respond to our students and we want to change that. I love a question, Wisteria, that you and I were speaking about on our Get to Know You call, and it was, if we go in thinking... What does this child have to teach me? Wow, does that ever change our perception, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I think that is the question we need to be asking versus what can I do to help this child? The first thing we do is we have to ask ourselves, am I contributing to this problem, right? What are my reactions? So the first thing is that I always go to is, do I need to repair something right away? So I call it rupture and repair. So if I have snapped at a child, it is my responsibility to repair that. It is not a child's responsibility to monitor my behavior or to make sure that they are adhering to my emotional state. It is my job to be the wise adult in the classroom or in the relationship with any child. Um, We have to stop having children heavy load for us because that is not appropriate and it, it creates insecure attachment. So the second is, um, so I I repair something. I need to get below a child. So one of the greatest ways that Fred Rogers interacted with children is that he would get below them in proximity with his body. Stop standing over children and talking down to them. It's super important to take a knee and to get eye to eye with them and use touch is a big one. And I know that educators get really kind of about touch. It's okay to reach out and touch a child on the shoulder or to put my hand on their arm for a minute and just to help them understand. And with small children, they're going to try to crawl up in your lap. So I often will just kind of snuggle them to the side. But the big one is um, I've even had children put their forehead against my forehead because they're just trying to, to touch and connect. Um, the first thing I ask them is, do you need a hug? I ask them, do you do you need a hug? And they and they'll tell me yes or no. If they're mad at me, they say no. And I'm like, chill. That's great. OK, but th- I have to be willing to hold space for whatever a child's emotional state is. Right. So I have to be able to be OK with the fact that they feel whatever they feel and stop trying to make it better because it makes me uncomfortable. Okay. Especially if they're angry with you, huge one. You can't make it better right away. Just like when we tell kids not like, I don't tell children to say it's okay when they've been, someone apologizes because it's not okay that they've been hurt. So I always just say, just say thank you when people apologize to you. And then you can decide what you want to do with it. And it might take a while and you need to give people the gift of time. So that's a big one for Fred Rogers too, is giving children the gift of time to be able to go through the process of how they feel. So I will ask them, do you need some time to think about it? Do you need some time 
for a minute. You know, do you need to take a couple deep breaths and I'll come back if you need it? So I think it's really recognizing that every situation is its own magical moment with children. Wisteria, you touched on something just a minute ago that I, I really want to give a cautionary note to for educators, and it is about hugging, because school boards have procedures and policies. There are protection policies around the world, globally in different places. And with our listeners in 140 different countries, every family have has different traditions and beliefs that, of course, as teachers, we get to know our parents and guardians, and we value those belief systems. Um, if a student comes to us and attempts to, to hug, we can move to the side and embrace them, an arm over the shoulder. Uh, fist bumps, high fives, elbows, all of those things. You feel appropriate. And I I teach in post-secondary now, educational assistance, future educational assistance. So what what we tell them is imagine that every student in front of you has that orange vest, you know, the schoolyard vest, the, the safety vest on, you, you know, because if a student comes running at you, if you can imagine that safety vest, then you can turn to the side and still give that child or young person the affirmation or the validation that they're looking for. So I, I just thought that was important to share. Absolutely. And that's totally fine. And I think um, it's it's really unfortunate that we live in the in the world that it we is. do. I was, you know, there's times where I even am sad watching Fred uh, because he'd be like, oh, your son is is just marvelous or whatever. And I'm thinking, man, people will be like, oh, that creepy. And I'm like, it's so sad that we, we we live in an age that's like that, unfortunately, that a bunch of crappy instances have changed things for us. But anyways, um, so I, I think, yeah, the attunement piece of just really allowing ourselves to be emotionally present for a child, but we do not need to jump into the chaos. So if we start to feel as though we're taking on the emotions of the child, recognizing that in ourselves and finding ways that we can step back from the situation a little bit. Um, And I've even explained to children things like, I feel really angry about this right now. Like if they've done something and like, or I'm feeling super sad, can we take a minute? Because Mrs. Edwards needs to to breathe deep. Or I'll even say, boy, I'm feeling super triggered right now. And I'll use that word with my kids. And I'll be like, I'll just start doing deep breathing. or I'll do, And I'll be like, can you join me with this? Because I just, or I've had times where I was frustrated. And I said, let's do some karate chopping. And we, yeah, like we do it. Because, and then I'm like, oh, I feel so much. I've pounded clay with kids. And then we also use Fred Rogers songs. Like, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And I'll just start singing it to them. And then they'll start singing it back to me. So it's using cues, using humor, using whatever it takes to survive the moment and make sure that we're okay. So I'm sorry if we don't get to all the math problems, but if you are falling apart, that is more of a priority to me. And the hard part is with scopes and sequences and data and all those things that we deal with with school districts and and you know from being an admin, those things have to happen or testing or whatever, but my goodness, how are we going to get a good score on a test when we can't even emotionally regulate? So it's it's just my priority. And I think it's just, it's a huge shift, but it will change the world if we yes. start caring about emotional regulation over what we're producing on pen and paper or on a test. I mean, I just, we cannot survive without it. And we're seeing our world is getting more and more chaotic because people do not have the coping skills to be able to deal with anything, even if it's disappointment or waiting in a line. Well, and there's, yeah. there's, there's four decades of research to support this, right? Four decades. No, it's not like it's new, so, right? You know, anybody who's an influencer, if you're in a position where you can actually start to talk about wellness and make that a priority in school, quality versus quantity of what's yes. happening. And if you're yes. a teacher right now listening and you're thinking, I don't have the time, I don't have 10 minutes extra in a day, trust me, trust mm. me. 
by taking that time and making it a regular part of your day. And we're going to talk about what that actually Mm -hmm. looks like, you know, so we can be concrete about it. You are going to see kids doing better. You will see kids being more comfortable. You will see less uh, suspension type behavior, blow ups. And those kids that are withdrawn that very often are with, you know, we don't put our eyes on them because they're not the ones that are right there in front of us. They Mm -hmm. need that support too. And there's tremendous anxiety. And I think that was a huge thing that I learned after I started studying insecure attachments, that um, avoidant attachment is riddled with anxiety. But we're going to see perfectionism come out of that with children or rigidity with rules and regulations, all of those kind of things. So you were talking about setting up a routine or how do we start creating a culture for that? One, we need to start talking about it from the the moment of boo, like the minute they walk in, um, especially, you know, kindergarten is a little bit easier because they have such big emotions coming in the door. But um, we do a little front loading, at least I do, um, before school even starts, where we do some conferencing with parents and children. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing a lot of talking about how do we say goodbye well? And what does goodbye look like? And what is wonderful about goodbye is that there's going to be a hello, hello. right? <laughs> so we talk about the fact that grownups come back because they want to. And so mommy and daddy are trusting that when they put you in my care, I'm going to take wonderful care of you. But I always tell them, but I don't want to take any kindergartners home. I don't want five girls in my house. So it's okay because you're going to see mommy and daddy again. Please take the chance to notice everything about children. Notice what they look like in the line. Notice how they're holding their backpack. Notice how they have their arms crossed in front of them. It's telling you something, something. about the child's emotional state. And the thing is, is that if, so we talked about this before too. I use the 1% rule. The 1% is to stay in a moment longer than you normally would. So when you're greeting a child in the morning, giving them a handshake, hug, high five, whatever it might be, fist bump at the door, even though you have to get through the whole line, you're trying to get them all in and they all want to be like, today's my Dia's birthday and today my dog, blah, blah, blah. And they tell you all the, oh, look at my wiggly tooth. But the thing is, (laughs) um, staying in that moment 1% longer, wiggling the tooth or getting on my knees and being like, wow, or boy, it looks like this morning is, I'm noticing today looks like it's a hard day. Do you want to talk about it now? Or would you like to take a couple minutes, put your things away and then come see me while people are dancing? Because we start the morning every day with a dance break kind of video so that I can get them in the door, but then I can walk around and do that kind of one-on-one connection with them or take a little bit longer as they're coming in with whomever. And they get really good at giving each other time. Because they know, like when Blue Eyes was a kindergartner, one, they never fought over his spot. Even though I would pick sticks with their numbers for the other spots, they knew no matter what, he needed that spot. Children are wonderful about sensing what other people need. And it's not wrong for them to see that. We always are like, oh, we don't want them to know this child has special needs. But we celebrate that. Like we have little boy, a little boy that comes in with autism and we talk about his brain is special. And this is what he needs so that he feels successful. And they greeted him and they were so excited when he came in. And so we also did a, a push in and a, a, into the, the, the special education room too. So my kids would go and visit there and they thought that was way cool, right? So it's a matter of how we show children how to respond to the world. And so if I make it a priority to ask them how they're doing and connect with them, they will patiently wait in line, just like Disneyland to meet Elsa, right? Because 
It's the most magical moment. Of, that's why they love to be tested one-on-one -on -one by their teacher because they get you all to themselves. So like, for instance, it used to be like this big, long triage line at my desk. And it literally, they just wanted to tell me it was someone's birthday or my mom likes the color red or whatever. But it's, I used to get so annoyed with that because I'm like, you're slowing me down. Like, I've got work to do. Like, mm. I've got to take attendance. Like, things that really matter in life, right? The list, but, yep. Right. But we miss life. We miss it. We miss these moments. Every time I have grown from a child, it is not because I planned it. That is a huge reminder that magic moments with children, teachable moments, um, those aha moments are come through silence. They come through wonder. They come through just humor, things that kids say that derail me. I let myself laugh a little bit longer at it and be silly with them a little longer or dance with them a little longer or, or ask them, you know, what do we need right now? Boy, I'm feeling sad. What could we do? And then I ask them, what do you suggest? Like asking them questions. I also tell them constantly, you can never lose my love. Ever. Like, I cannot like your behavior, but you will never lose my love because children need to know that there is at least one person that's going to apologize to them, one person that's going to love them no matter what, one person that's going to keep them safe. And it has to be their teacher because there are some children that have nothing at home. And so that is our first priority, the safety. It's, it's the choices that we make or our students make or our children make. They're not bad kids because of that choice and that behavior. It's a learning opportunity. Yeah. It's just a choice. <laughs> Like, yeah. And I make choices all the time that I am not happy. I, I'm like, I make mistakes exactly. all the time. You see them, right? And does it make me a bad person? Do you think, oh, my teachers? No. So oftentimes I put it back on me to show them. And then I also, big one is children love to hear stories from when we were little. So I have my stuffed animals in the classroom that I had. And they get to go get those if they're dysregulated. I have pictures I drew. I have a picture outside my classroom of it's my school picture when I was in kindergarten. So they see that when they walk in every day. And so it's things like that that remind them, like, I was a child once. And now I take care of you. And Mr. Rogers sings that. I'm taking care of you. For once, I was very little. And now... Um, I take care of you. Right. And so, and I sing that over them a lot. We sing a lot. And so I, I think it's just one of those things where, where at the end of the day, so we, we, we talk about feelings and it's very important that you have some type of community circle every day, something. Uh, I wanted to get to that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that, that we, I use, um, I love the company Generation Mindful because they have these great snuggle buddies and each one of them is an animal and then you pull the color out, but it's very simple. So going back to simple and deep is far more essential than shallow and complex. If there are too many things for them to choose from, small children are kind of like, oh, they can't. But because that movie Inside Out came out where they talk about the colors and I know you've talked about different things with your, your business as well too, but I think helping children identify a color, a feeling, an emotion, having them see faces. Um, it's very important, especially with children that have avoidant attachment. They've gotten really used to masking their affect. So when looking at their face, they will not know that they are they, that they have an emotion. They're good at hiding it. So getting them to recognize emotion and then uh, telling how they feel about it. So we we pass it around and we say we get to have one feeling. We get to talk about one feeling. So choose how you feel. 
And so we give them a sentence frame to start out the year. I feel blank. And so at the beginning of the year, they don't even tell me why. I just say, I feel happy. I feel sad. Identifying emotion. Yep. I feel bad. Just one. And, um, and then I'll read things like, and so surrounding them with, with literature, I know you have your book series, you have, and then other books, find good quality literature that really demonstrates emotion and talk about that character and then say, uh, and then making connections, like connections to text, other texts and then connections to self. But really it's more about just having dialogue constantly about emotions. Oh, I'm seeing that Lynn is feeling sad after recess. Would you guys like to talk about it? And so if children are having a conflict, I'll say, can we work this out in front of people? Can we do this as a, so we can all learn together? And so children get really comfortable having restorative justice with each other where they, I say, okay, why don't you say, how did you feel? It made me feel sad. Oh, did you realize that it made her feel sad? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, now to have a friend, you need to, and the kids will be like, be a friend because I've talked about it or I've given them a little adage for them to remember. I'm like, are you being a good friend? And then usually the person that made someone sad will start to cry. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay to cry. Tears are okay. It's okay. And does, do tears mean that we're, that we're bad? No. Tears mean that we're sad and that we're sorry. And that's, Awesome. And said, so, and then I say, can you say, can we still be friends? Yes, we can still be friends. So like really helping them restore it and then telling them how proud I am of them. Like, I think we need to celebrate when children make good choices, when they're a good, kind friend. And it's not about, you know, oh, now I give you a special treat because you're awesome. The special treat should be that you're awesome because you're awesome. Right. So really right, instead yeah. of yes, that positive reinforcement is helpful, but I think it's more about, man, to a child, this is what I've learned. When their teacher looks them in the eye and says, I am so proud of you. Yes. What a difference. It's massive compared yeah. to giving them a treat that goes toward the school store or whatever. I mean, they like that. But how many of us really remember what we bought at Chuck E. Cheese or wherever we went for a couple of dollars? It's more about the moments that our teacher looked at us or told us, man. And I look at him and I'll like be like, Whoop. like I'll pretend that my heart is growing or Oh man, I say, bless my teacher heart. Like if that is so, I'm so proud of you. Uh, And we talk about, that's another Fred thing. You're growing on the inside. When I'm not with you, that you're making choices that I would just be like, yep, they're mine. And so I would say, I loan you to first grade and I loan you to second grade, but you're always (laughs) mine. And how many of us just need that? We just need someone that sees us because we go through life sometimes invisible. And that's a huge burden for me. Fred was also an invisible child. He grew up with a very frightened, hypochondriac mother. And he was isolated because he had extreme wealth. And his mom was terrified something was going to happen to him like the Lindbergh baby. And um, he was just very isolated. And so he knew what that felt like to be alone. And he never wanted anyone else to feel alone. And I think we also talk in my classroom to look for lonely people. Look for people who don't have friends. And what can we do? And then modeling that and and playing with that and saying, hey, would you like to be my friend? Okay. Mm-hmm. And what if someone says no? They're like, find someone else. Yep. Keep going. Find like, your people. Find your people, right? And then don't be excluded. And you can have more than one friend. That's probably the one of the first friendship lessons I do because, you know, you can only have one friend, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, but I think it's, then it's really a culture of, I do this because it matters to me. If it will not change unless it absolutely wholeheartedly matters to you that children are emotionally well. And if it doesn't matter, we need to ask why. But this is just like an ease. Loving children is very easy when we don't have our own junk that we're looking through, like looking through mud. Mm -hmm. 
and and finding a way to wade through the pressures, you know, whether you're, whether you're a brand new teacher, a 10 year teacher, a 20 year teacher, there's always, there's always something new that, you know, that, that you got to figure out and you got to wrap your head around. I want to go to, I want to go back to, we've talked about so much so far with Staria, um, structure. So yeah. I mean, that whole period of isolation that occurred during COVID, et cetera, I mean, never going oh. back to that, I hope ever, but Mm-mm. even, even as a school principal, I used to do common prep times and it was welcomed. So if there are four grade three teachers, all of you got your preparation time at the exact same block. Yeah. It's a timetabling nightmare, but then what mm-hmm. it does is offer you the opportunity because prep time is your choice, what you do with it to say, yes, this is the team. Let's sit together. Let's do some curriculum problem. Let's talk about these kids and how we can best support them. It really was a very, very powerful thing. So I'm imploring yeah. to people, educators who are in the position or leaders who are in the position of thinking about how can this structurally look like to create a team? That's another way to do it. Absolutely. And I, I'm really passionate about, like we decided as a team that one lunch every week we would eat together. Beautiful. And as Love it. crazy as that seems, it was so important because we, even if it was a working lunch, we were sitting together eating. There's really a lot of power eating with other people. And, um, and that you have to, the Barracuda, when it comes to uh, even the time that we have with Mr. Rogers, it is absolutely sacred and holy to me. Like nobody gets to interrupt it. Nothing interferes with it. If something has to change with the schedule for the day, it's the first thing I find the 28 minutes for it. And I think my children will always ask, do we get to do the lion? It's so important. They would love, like, there's times where I'm like, we can either have a little bit longer for player or, but I go, well, we won't get to the lion. And they're like, oh, they always opt for the lion. They are hungry to tell you how they are feeling. And the lion is the collaborative circle time. Yes. Okay. Yes. I don't think we called it that earlier. I just wanted to be sure. Either, like, (laughs) if you call it a community circle, collaborative, whatever it is, um, a classroom meeting, whatever it is, put them in a circle, have them sitting, looking at each other away from distractions and take the time. And it's really hard at the beginning of kindergarten. It is literally like, I think to myself, why in God's green earth do I do this job? It is so hard. (laughs) They're babies. And some of them have never left their mom. Some of them are three years um, old here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So we do do cartoons. We we lay down. We and we don't do napping, but if they fall asleep, I, I, I cover them with a blanket and pull them somewhere and I let them sleep. It takes a while. It's an ease into into school. But it's the idea that like creating that opportunity for them to be able to tell you things and and be available to them. And uh, so whatever that looks like, you can decide what it looks like, the structure wise, but you children need routine. So whatever you do, they need to know what to predict. Predicting is one of the best catalysts for not having massive behaviors. And especially with children on the spectrum, especially with children with insecure attachment, because what happens to a child, at least for me as a child, when there is ambiguity and I don't know what's coming next, I start to panic and I start to plan. And that child, you'll know those children are up at your desk. Why aren't we going to library right now? You would usually go to library right now. That is fear. And I always say, so what do we do after Mr. Rogers? Oh, we go to, oh. So like the more that you create that routine, there is such safety in it. Mm-hmm. And they know what to predict and they know what's coming. Yeah. And you don't get the, uh, you, you lessen the anxiety, the anxiousness. Oh, okay, yeah. Wisteria, I want to I move into your podcast. 
my podcast is called Just Simple and Deep, Deep Podcast, and it is a component of my business that I also do for women. And it's to educate women, um, help them understand insecure attachment, to engage their stories like we talked about, and to live lives that are, are intentional, regardless of their teachers, mothers, parents, you know, whatever you're doing. I truly believe that engaging your own story and your own attachment style is going to be the, what helps you flourish in life. And, so and you I, have something I, to offer listeners as well, I believe. I think, oh yes, absolutely. So basically what I offer on my website, wisteriaedwards.com, W-Y-S-T-R-I-A, edwards.com, is a free attachment style quiz, 60 seconds, like less time than it takes to go to the bathroom. That's teachers know. So anyways, um, <laughs> I you go ahead and take that. You get a customized report that's going to tell you your attachment style. And what happens is once you get that, you can actually opt into a free copy of Waiting for Mr. Rogers, which releases September 26th. And I'll sign that for you. You just pay shipping and handling on it. And then um, you can also opt in for the new course that's going to be a companion course for about $27, which is less than like the two two. 250 that's going to be for the actual course. So more than anything, I just want your listeners to know that there is absolute freedom and an easier way of attuning to children. If you want to be effective, truly effective, and not only just change behavior of children, but truly reach their heart, this is the way to do it. Beautiful closing comments, Wisteria, and a very generous offer as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, I'm excited to introduce Jenna Jouches. And yeah, we're doing this shift here. You're going to wonder why we are having an internationally recognized landscape architect on the show. Well, Jenna is a nature play expert, and she teaches parents, early child educators, and others how to create sensory-rich nature-based play and learning spaces for children so they can grow their bodies, their minds, and their spirits. And I was blown away as a previous school administrator when Jenna explained how school playgrounds can be transformed into natural exploratory spaces, including a rain garden. She's going to talk about our own backyards and our community spaces as well. She's the founder of N is for Nature Play. Now, as is posted on every single one of my podcast episodes, the primary purpose of the show is to educate, which does not constitute professional advice or services. The views and the opinions expressed are those of the guests and we encourage you as listeners or viewers on YouTube to research and follow up with the guests that you're most interested in through the links that we provide. Now let's check our compass and learn what we need to as we empower our children to face those ups and downs of life, which will surely come. Be safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of Taking the Helm. We hope that Lynn and her guests have provided valuable insights on how to create a safe emotional space for your children that empowers them to be their best selves. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.